Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're going to mix things up a bit and focus not so much on a particular theme like we usually do, but on a particular neighborhood. A D.C. neighborhood where livestock once roamed freely, where after the Civil War, newly freed slaves became some of the first residents, and where decades later, Duke Ellington and Carter G. Woodson became household names. It's the neighborhood of Shaw. And over the next hour, we'll meet some folks who've long been part of the community. Well, I've been coming in here for just a whole lot of years. I keep telling me every time I come in here, he puts more gray hair up there. I don't understand that. (laughs) And we'll explore the neighborhood's restaurant renaissance. We were the first destination restaurant on the street, and people thought we were a little bit crazy, but um, it's worked out okay. Plus, we'll hear from residents who worry rising rents will push them out of the neighborhood. I look around and I see that this is becoming an extension of Georgetown. But first, to understand the Shaw of today, and tomorrow for that matter, you need to take a look back at the Shaw of yesterday, or yesteryear, really. And one thing you'll learn when you do is that back then, Shaw wasn't originally called Shaw. Shaw is really um, an urban renewal name. came up in the 60s. This is Washington native Denise Johnson. It was named after Colonel Shaw, who headed up the 54th Regiment from Massachusetts, fought in the Civil War, African-American Regiment. Um, And it was actually picked up from the name, the name from the Shaw Junior High School, which is right down the street at Rhode Island Avenue. Denise and I met up right around 9th and Q Streets Northwest, just north of the historic home of Carter G. Woodson, the founder of Black History Month. The house is one of the key stops along the Shaw Heritage Trail, something Johnson knows like the back of her hand. Um, I happened to work on the Shaw Heritage Trail as part of my work when I was working with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Can you talk about the, the what, for people who don't know what these heritage trails are around town, like the Shaw Heritage Trail, what, what is it? What are they? Cultural Tourism, D.C., has sponsored, along with the D.C. Department of uh, Transportation, a variety of trails that highlight neighborhood history. So this was one of the earlier trails that came along. Interestingly enough, when we started talking about it, cultural tourism didn't think that the neighborhood was ready for the trail. And so they knew the history was here, but the question was, would people feel comfortable walking this neighborhood? What I told them was people were already getting off the metro and stumbling around looking lost and needing something to do. So I felt that by the time that we actually opened the trail that the neighborhood would in fact be ready. So Denise, what do you think it is about Shaw that sets it apart from different historic neighborhoods in the city? I think Shaw is kind of special because it was really the home of African American culture in the city. I think it's also unusual in terms of its placement. Um, We call the trail Mid-City at the Crossroads because it really was at the crossroads of many different things happening. So people might not realize that 7th Street was one of the first roads that was constructed out of the district. And it was a connection between the waterfront and the farms in Montgomery County. So, for example, when the O Street Market opened in 1881, it made sense because it was on the route for the farmers to bring their wares in from the suburbs. So it was really a, a... a mixing bowl, especially in the early days. But Shaw as a whole kind of became Washington, D.C.'s Harlem Renaissance. There are a lot of notable people that lived here and people that were real movers and shakers um, in the neighborhood's heyday, which I would say was in the early 
1910s, 1920s. Who were some of those figures? Well, for example, Blanche K. Bruce was one of the first senators after Reconstruction from Mississippi. He lived down on M Street. His wife was also a notable civil rights activist. People don't realize that this was um, also an activist neighborhood, so that the labor unions, for example, got their start here. So the AFL actually got its start here. A. Philip Randolph, right down the street here on Q Street, had a uh, branch of the Pullman Porters Union and actually worked to integrate the AFL. So you have folks like that that lived in the neighborhood. Um, There is a connection to uh, Duke Ellington, who was right up the street. And one of the other things that I would say is that this is only a small part of Shaw. We're in the eastern part of Shaw. But Shaw is really a large territory. Depends on who you talk to, but most of us kind of agree that it was bounded on the south at Massachusetts Avenue, on the east at New Jersey Avenue, on the west at 15th Street, and on the north at Florida Avenue. So not only on this east side did you have a lot of activity, but you also had a lot of activity on the west side. So you had U Street, for example, the Black Broadway. Um, You have landmarks such as the White Law Hotel, which is at 13th and T. That was the first African-American hotel and apartment building opened in the city, built by John White Law Lewis. That's how it got its name. And um, in renovating that building, actually I was a project manager for that project, we found old hotel ledgers with Cab Calloway's name and Duke Ellington's name. So you could see Duke Ellington and his band staying there for $1.50 or $2.50 a night. So you had notables on that side of the neighborhood as well. So it was really a large swath. So you mentioned that Shaw is an urban renewal name. What has this neighborhood been known by or known as through the years? It was, interestingly enough, at the beginning, it was known as Northern Liberties. And it was called Northern Liberties because north of downtown, it was really farmland. So the cows and the pigs roamed. And there was a big market on Mount Vernon Square called Northern Liberties Market, which ultimately burned down and ultimately was replaced by the O Street Market. It was sometimes called Mid-City. And so you find that people who have lived here historically find a sense of pride in the name Shaw, even though it's an urban renewal name. And as you see in the neighborhood transform, some folks have wanted to abandon that name Shaw because they want to see a shift or they associate it with the bad times or the 68 riots or the decline of the neighborhood. I think you find amongst the African Americans that live in the neighborhood that it's a sense of pride, that it really represents um, all of the things that, that happened here that were really instrumental in making Washington what it is. That was D.C. native Denise Johnson, a historic preservation expert who's worked with the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Washington Convention Center's Historic Preservation Fund. She also served as chair for the Shaw Heritage Trail. For more information on the trail and to see historic photos of some of those movers and shakers Denise Johnson talked about, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
Our next stop on today's Shaw Tour brings us to a legendary live music venue, the 930 Club. If you've ever been to this spot on V Street Northwest, you may have noticed something kind of unusual, an antenna sticking out of the very top. See, back in the day, the building was home to WUST, a daytime-only radio station transmitting at 250 watts on AM 1120. It was a low-power station, to be sure, but that didn't stop it from making its mark. In the 1950s, it was one of the first stations in Washington to play R&B. And no WUST staffer was more famous than DJ Lord Fauntleroy Bandy. His real name was John Bandy, and he'd speak with a British accent as he played tunes behind a window looking out at the sidewalk. So kids from all over would swarm outside and watch. Producer Hans Andersen searched far and wide for audio of Bandy, and while he wasn't able to find any of that old tape, he did find some major Lord Fauntleroy fans who shared their memories of the legendary DJ. He brings back the great music, man, like the flamingos, like the spaniels, the Oreos. My love must be a kind of blind love. He broadcast right out of this, um, uh, yeah, a window right here, and people will ride up and down the streets, and he will holler at them out. This is Lord Fauntleroy Bandy. (laughs) Hello out there in that red Cadillac convertible. We were staying out here, and we were dancing, and, and, and he encouraged it. And so we, I don't think that many of us knew his name was John. We just know, knew Lord Fauntleroy Bandy. And it, it was very, very uh, amusing, man, because, like I said, when I first saw him, he had a, he wore an ascot. You know, he was dressed, sharp dresser, man, really a sharp dresser. And uh, he was very striking, a ladies' man. If you can just imagine this whole sidewalk being covered with girls. Why do fools fall in love? Swooning. Maybe he was 15 years older than we are, but we would be like, oh, goodness. I used to hear him in the afternoons, apparently he did afternoon drive, and of course there was the British accent that um, kind of fingerprinted him. But I know he was a student at Howard University, and he was in the, in the actor's uh, uh, studio, and I know they had traveled to Europe during his uh, tenure there, and he came back with this great accent, the British accent. In fact, a lot of us thought that he was white, but we didn't realize that he was a brother. And um, we found that out because, like I said, he broadcast right out of this, um, uh, yeah, a window right here. I think it was a learned accent. I, I don't know whether he had traveled, you know. I never thought about that, really. But I mean, and as far as we were concerned, it was perfect. You know, it was a perfect accent, we thought. <laughs> Seems I remember one tagline of his where he used to say, I may have this wrong, but he used to say, I think, he used to say something about, I'm going downtown to see Mr. Brown and spin the round table. Maybe he was talking about James Brown, I don't know.
Of course, at that time, he was playing rhythm and blues. Rhythm and blues was much different than it is now. Rhythm and blues was actually love music. All those great groups, man, back at them. It was about love, about love, you know? And he would sit in that window and, uh, and play that music, man. And we were, and we were a part of that, man. And uh, one of my favorite songs was The Spaniels, You Gave Me Peace of Mind. Well, you get me peace of mind. So and I always connect that with Lord Fontenoy Bandy because he would always play that. I think that was one of his favorites, too. And so we would get down here about 3.15, and people, kids came from everywhere. They didn't just come from Cardozo. Uh, Garnett Patterson, which is the junior high school, was right down the street and kids would come from there and then it got bigger and bigger because he was on the air and kids would come from Spingarn all the way over northeast just to stand in front of this window and and watch him play because he was a handsome dude too he was real nice looking that was Harold Bell, Sandra Butler Truesdale, and Patrick Ellis sharing their memories of DJ Lord Fauntleroy Bandy with producer Hans Anderson. And we don't know about you, but we are dying to hear Fauntleroy Bandy and that famous British accent. So if you happen to have any recordings of him, maybe tucked away in a desk drawer or somewhere in your attic, we would sure love to hear them. Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. Oh, and in case you're wondering whatever happened to Bandy, he left D.C. in the late 1950s and went to Philly, where he worked as the assistant general manager of WDAS. But clearly, his memory lives on in the town he originally called home. Time now for a break, but when we get back, remembering the riots. Between 7th and 9th Street, everything was just being demolished. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Peace WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're taking a closer look at one of D.C.'s most dynamic and fast-changing neighborhoods, Shaw. Before the break, we explored Shaw's early history, and we heard about Lord Fauntleroy Bandy, the neighborhood's most famous DJ. Well, we'll hear some more from one of Bandy's fans now, Sandra Butler Truesdale. But the context here is a whole lot darker. For a few days back in 1968... Shaw looked like a war zone. It was the first weekend of April, and the nation's capital was burning. As Jacob Fenston tells us, those fires would leave scars that are still healing today. April 4th, 1968, Steve Souter walked into the D.C. Fire Department's command center. Yeah, we're 
It was his first day on the job. His new boss told him he'd be operating the radio that night. He said, okay, what you do, you push this button and you talk. And then you stop pushing the button and you let the people in the field talk. And then at about 7 o'clock, we had the news on. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color. The busy room suddenly went silent. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. I just remember screaming and screaming and screaming. About a mile from the fire station, Sandra Butler Truesdale was at home when she heard the news. Dr. King was almost, quote, quote, the savior to a lot of people. And so when they took him away, they took away our hero. After the shock wore off a little bit, uh, there was kind of a an apprehension in the air of the communication center because we quite frankly didn't know what that might unleash. The corner of 14th and U Street Northwest, the heart of D.C.'s black community, was already bustling on that warm April evening. But as the news spread, the mood turned from shock and grief to anger. That anger went into violence. At the well-known location of 14th and U Street Northwest, we received the report of a dumpster fire. And we dispatched a single-engine company, Small Fire. The first of more than 1,000 fires that would burn across the city over the next few days. We knew that we were on the brink of something. We didn't know how big it would get, how bad it would be, how long it would last. The fact that Martin Luther King got killed, a major civil rights leader shot past me. Najee Shabazz was 16 at the time, watching TV at his girlfriend's house. And I'm not really thinking history or, you know, my culture, nothing like that. Then they show footage of what was going on in D.C. People were going in the stores and taking clothes and TVs, and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to get something, too. It was free, you know. It was really stealing, but I wanted to be a part of it. He got in the car and headed toward the action, just one of the 20,000 people who would take part in the riots. The first thing I noticed was just how smoky D.C. was, you know, and it really did look like uh, 4th of July times 10. By the end of that first night, looters had destroyed 150 businesses along 14th Street. The next day, President Lyndon Johnson took to the airwaves to urge calm. If we are to have the America that we mean to have, all men of all races, all regions, all religions must stand their ground to deny violence its victory. Black leaders called for peace, too. Walter Fontroy, the city's future delegate to Congress, and future mayor Marion Barry. But it didn't work. By midday, the city was ablaze again as riots and fires spread from 14th Street to 9th and 7th Streets in Shaw and to H Street Northeast. Steve Souter was back at the command center on less than two hours of sleep. The radio traffic was absolutely nonstop. My name's Jerry Combs. I was appointed to Engine 15. Ray Tanner. I was a six engine. My name is uh, Gary Boyd, and I was assigned to Engine 4. We'd have a fire at, uh, at one address, so we'd pull past it so we'd get the hose lines off the back. 
And by the time we uh, finished fighting that fire, we'd come out and the house next door where the engine was would be on fire and be blistering the paint off. We turn around and boom, across the street, they lit off another building. One store after another just went up in fire. Never saw anything like that in my life. All you could see was fire rolling out of every window you saw. And we're pumping water into it. It was just like spitting in the ocean. By Friday evening, the district was occupied by more than 13,000 federal troops. They barricaded streets and fired tear gas to disperse the crowds. No military, no, no civilian vehicles on the street at all. No civilian cars on the street at all. If you're caught in this area, you will be gassed. No, good. I, I mean, I don't want to be If you're caught on the streets, you'll be gassed. Get off the streets. Along with the Army troops came one private mangum with a tape recorder and microphone. Date 6-4-68. He captured the sounds of the burning city and interviewed residents and workers. He didn't get their names, but he did record their frustrations. People can't hardly make a living. On the way up, I give them just enough to pay the rent with, nothing to get the clothes and food and stuff like that. Hell, I'm going to tell you, I've been through it. I don't know what to I'm 64 years old. The way, the way the people treating around here, that color people around it, 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 it ain't right. Really a mess down here. I mean, the people look like they just went wild. But now it's our job to clean it up, try to get the city back in shape again. Well, we work for Liberty Wrecking Company. So the caterpillars down here now pushing all the bricks and stuff back so they can start rebuilding again. Looks like it'll take about six months for them to get it back together again, I guess. About that long, six to eight months. That's what I approximate. Rebuilding Shaw was not a matter of months. Half the property on the commercial section of 14th Street had been destroyed. When Steve Souter finally emerged from the Fire Department Command Center on Monday, it was a different city. You'd look to the left and you'd look to the right and you'd see buildings that survived, but in between you'd see block after block of vacant buildings or just no buildings at all, just space. And you could not help but wonder, will this ever, ever come back? The riots weren't the only cause of the white flight and the black flight that drained the city's middle class. But D.C.'s population had still been growing year after year right up until 1968. After the riots, people left in droves, 10, 20, 40,000 people each year until 1999, when the city had lost more than one-third of its population. I think what was unanticipated at the time was that wealthier people, both white and black, would want to live in the city. Blair Rubel, who wrote a book on the history of U Street, says for decades, the neighborhood was rebuilt block by block, largely through the hard work of local churches and community groups. And the irony is that they were planning for ways to connect the residents to jobs. And instead, what happened is they created an excellent microenvironment for gentrification because um, they did connect the neighborhood to jobs. They were just jobs for new arrivals. Now, 45 years later, those riot corridors are some of the hottest property in the city. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can take a trip back in time to the Shaw of 1968 on our website, where we have all sorts of archival video and photos of the riots. Just head over to metroconnection.org.
Now, after the riots, a lot of people wanted out of Shaw. Many fled to other parts of the city or out to the suburbs. But many people stayed. In fact, you actually saw a lot of people moving in to the neighborhood, including this guy. Hi, I'm Kojo Namdi, host of the Kojo Namdi Show here. WAMU's own Kojo Namdi put down roots in Shaw in 1971, just a few years after first coming to D.C. He lived in Shaw more than 25 years, finally leaving in 1997. He sat down this week with Metro Connection's Tara Boyle to share his memories of the area so soon after the 1968 riots. My wife and I had twin boys, and so the two-bedroom apartment in which we were living was no longer large enough, and so we moved to 929S Street. It seemed at the time that it was a great neighborhood for young people who were starting families. There was a lot of rental housing available, including in the houses that we lived in. Most of the houses that we lived in on our street were either people renting or people who were owning, but quite a lot of people were renting. And I spent my first six years in Shaw living in that house, and my friend, my son's, made friends with neighbors' children in the neighborhood. It's so interesting to me that you say Shaw at that time was a really great community for families because so often in the media that era is characterized, you know, as a time when Shaw was really devastated and people were fleeing the neighborhood. But it sounds like your reality was quite a bit different from that. Well, a lot of my friends considered me an urban pioneer because at the time they said, we wouldn't think of living in Shaw especially after the riots. There's likely to be a lot of crime. Interestingly enough, that was not my experience at first. Indeed, for all of the years I lived in Shaw, I never had a home or a car broken into during the course of all of those years. When we moved from S Street to 8th Street, however, that was when, by 1977, drugs had begun to overtake that community, and it was a more challenging experience than living around the corner on S Street. However, I got to know the people in my neighborhood and was able to distinguish between those who were involved in criminal activities and those who were not, and somehow managed to befriend befriend them all. Um, Because regardless of what kinds of activities people were involved in, one had to live with them. And it was better if one acknowledged them if one befriended them, than if one made enemies out of them. So we became friends with everybody in the neighborhood, and we watched all of the families who moved in with us in 1977 because it was a part of an urban renewal project. All of the homes were newly renovated, so we all moved in at around the same time. Several of those families had children, And it was a remarkable experience over the course of the next 20 years to see a few of those children go in what would be considered the right direction, taking to education, getting through school, and going on to college, and then watch the majority of them deteriorate into a life of crime and jail. Did you worry about your own twins in that context? I worried about my own twins constantly, especially because... When they were 10 years old, in 1982, they lost their mother. She died of an aneurysm. I became a single parent, and raising two kids in a neighborhood that was rife with drugs and crime was not only a challenge, but was also a reason to fear. But 
we talked a lot. I explained to them a great deal what was going on in the neighborhood and what their boundaries were. There would be literally drug battles that would be going on on our street, one gang of people fighting another gang of people who all lived in the same neighborhood. And we'd be walking down the street and they'd say, stop, stop, stop fighting. Here comes Mr. Kojo. (laughs) (laughs) They would almost literally part and we would walk past them and say, hello, Mr. Kojo, how are you doing? And we'd walk past and then they'd start fighting (laughs) just as we got past. So even though it was a dangerous neighborhood to live in, for some reason or the other, we were made to feel welcome and at home in that neighborhood. When you visit Shaw now, it is such a different neighborhood than it was when you moved in. What, what do you think is gained and what do you think is lost in the changes that are coming to Shaw now? Those changes started to occur before we moved. Starting in the early 1990s, new families began, began to move in the Shaw, the kind of families that we had not seen before in Shaw, families of black and white gay men. And so it was clear that a change was beginning to occur. I think the first gentrifying family that was not black that moved in our neighborhood was a gay couple, one black, one white, and they immediately started renovating the house on the corner to look like a place we could only imagine before. And so you said, what's happening to this neighborhood? All of a sudden, the neighborhood is being beautified, even though right next to their renovation were guys still selling crack (laughs) on the corner. But it was the shape of things to come. Does it still feel like home when you walk around Shaw? It certainly does. I still feel like it's my neighborhood, even though the people now look different in the neighborhood. They are still, there's some, there's a, there's a coziness about that neighborhood. People still say hello to you on the street. I've heard people complain in other gentrified neighborhoods. Well, the neighbors don't even speak to me. <laughs> so, but that doesn't seem to be, because the truth of the matter is I still park in that neighborhood when I have to go downtown and I catch the metro on the corner at 7th and S. And I park there and invariably when I come back, I stroll around the neighborhood for a while and it still has the same feel that it always has. I think that's one of the reasons that neighborhoods like that lend themselves to gentrification because people feel at home in those neighborhoods. Of course, the block on which I lived, those houses are all adjoining houses, and so you feel you feel clustered in a way everywhere. There's a need um, for some neighborliness, and I think that transcends race, and people just feel comfortable there. So, yeah, I still love the neighborhood. That, of course, was WAMU's Kojo Namdi talking with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. And if you are a longtime resident of Shaw, or a total newbie, we'd love to hear your stories of life in the neighborhood. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Facebook. After the break cutting-edge cuisine. We'll find out why some of the city's most ambitious chefs are setting up shop in Shaw. You know, I signed my lease a year ago, and I think myself and maybe Table and A&D 
maybe got some of the last good deals available. I'm, I think there's some spaces now that are still available and reasonable, but I think probably a year from now, that price will probably go up a lot as well. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're doing something a little bit different and touring one of D.C.'s most historic neighborhoods, Shaw. We explored much of Shaw's past earlier in the show, from its dawning days as a settlement for freed slaves to the neighborly customs it maintained during even the most trying of times. But in this part of the show, we'll take a big bite out of the Shaw of today and tomorrow. Or... Let's get one everybody here. There you go. There you go. To be more accurate, how much time do we have? Five minutes more. We'll take a big sip. Okay, so this is Paco, the Red Experience. So it's a 50-50 blend of Grenache and Tempranillo. So it's a nice option for red drinkers that prefer red to white with um, a lighter dish. Can you recommend something from your food menu? Carnita sope. It would be good we're standing by the bar at Tally, a new restaurant on 9th Street Northwest, just east of Naylor Court. Co-owner and D.C. native Sherman Took has invited a wine rep to give his staff a mini-class on some of the menu's reds and whites. The 70-seat New American Eatery opened in Shaw at the end of August. We were part of uh, the ribbon cutting with Baby Whale, which is uh, Tom Powers' restaurant, next door to his own uh, corduroy restaurant, and then Mandalay Restaurant, which is uh, owned by Ong up the street. So the mayor uh, and several council members came through in one day and did, did all three of us. Three ribbon cuttings in one day, in one hour, actually, may sound like a lot, but in Shaw, especially around 9th Street, lately it really isn't all that surprising. In the past few years, we've seen the openings of Rogue 24, Seasonal Pantry, Sundavich, Table, not to mention Tally, Baby Whale, and Mandalay. And there's another 10 or 12 restaurants that are planned for somewhere within Shaw now in the next year. Rebecca Cooper is the restaurant and retail reporter for the Washington Business Journal. I recently sat down with her and Sherman Utuk over house-made sodas at a table in Tally's front window. Why Shaw? Why is it so magnetic right now in the food industry? You know, I think part of it is that as other areas that have finished their redevelopment, so they've become more expensive, the storefronts here become more affordable. Uh, Also, there's a ton of residential development being built here, so that makes the neighborhood more attractive to the restaurants. The downside, Cooper says, is that an influx of the new often brings a displacement of the old. You know, the neighborhood was probably before, you know, not serving the same clientele as it will when these newer, nicer apartments and whatnot open up. And as Sherman Utuk points out, there's quite a lot of whatnot going on around 9th Street right about now. So what do you see? I mean, we're looking out the window now at 9th Street. We can see the O Street Market going up. But uh, the church next door in the um, rehabilitation center is under development right now. So I'm assuming that building will be torn down and the facade still used, but that'll be done. The gas station I know is for sale as well, right across the street. Um, a lot of spaces that I think are vacant are, are being taken over, like Longview Gallery. The space next door is available. They moved over into that. But there's a lot of development right down the street next to Corduroy across from the convention center that is uh, definitely being sold or being developed right now as we speak. 
and someone with a front row view of all that development? Hi, you must be Rebecca. Hi, I am. Hi, I'm Tom. Tom, nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. Is Chef Tom Power, who owns Corduroy. I recently visited him next door at Baby Whale, the new 5,000-square-foot restaurant named for a very particular type of corduroy. Baby Whale is the uh, smallest weave of corduroy. Each ridge on a corduroy is a whale, so Baby Whale is a small, it's like a small corduroy. Power bought the building for corduroy in 2006, and after some serious renovations, he opened two years later. Now, when you started moving in or whatever in 2006, were there a lot of other eateries around? No, we were kind of the pioneers here. There was Vegetate was up the street, but that's since closed. I guess Queen of Sheba was up there, Ozzy's Cafe was there, and people thought we were a little bit crazy. People kind of thought, wow, this is a shaky neighborhood. What are we doing over here? What they were doing, it turns out, was looking ahead. I always liked the area, and I knew that Marriott had bought a lot of property over here in 2003, so I knew that the big hotel development was coming, and I knew that the old convention center site was going to be redone, and Chinatown is booming, so it seemed like it would just move this way. And do you think that that's actually happening? Have your premonitions come true? It is definitely moving that way. The hotel is almost finished. The O-City Market is coming up. The City Vista is going to really connect us with downtown, I think. Back at Tally, as we finish up our house-made sodas, Sherman Utuk and Rebecca Cooper second Tom Powers' motion. After all, Cooper says, the Marriott Marquis is nearly complete, and two other hotels near the convention center are on their way. And I would imagine that will also bring more people up this way toward Tally and the other restaurants that will open, because they're going to be be looking for a place to eat. It's good for you guys. It is. It is good for us. We haven't opened for lunch yet. Um, we don't feel that the neighborhood's ready for um, a you know Monday through Friday lunch spot. But um, maybe in a year or so, when the hotels are finished and there's more people in the neighborhood during the day for conventions, that the restaurant can sustain a lunch on Monday through Friday. But even as Sherman Utuk and his Ninth Street colleagues look toward the future, Utuk says that working here in this historic neighborhood, he can't help but pay homage to the past. On Tally's walls are images and signs from historic spots in Shaw, including one in Naylor Court that dates back to 1883 and helped give the eatery its name. The uh, carriage house in the back was called Tally Ho Carriage House, T-A-L-L-Y-H-O. My daughter's name is Talia, which is T-H-A-L-I-A. I call her Tally for short, so we added the H to Tally and just called the restaurant Tally. It's his way of holding on to a bit of the old Shaw on this rapidly changing street in this rapidly changing neighborhood that some say, culinarily speaking, is quickly becoming the toast of the town. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give with the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Have a tomato plato. Here's Cacciatora Dora. Have some bologna, Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. As Rebecca Cooper mentioned in that last story, all of this new development in Shaw can actually have some pretty tricky consequences for small businesses. But businesses aren't the only ones who may be priced out of the area. Some residents say that these days, finding and holding on to an affordable place to live can be a daunting task. The average price of a Shaw home is now nearly $560,000, according to the real estate site Redfin. And plenty of high-end condos and townhouses are going for far, far more. Lauren Ober brings us this story on the challenges of maintaining affordable housing, starting with an apartment complex that's given itself a major makeover. A banner hangs on the side of the former Lincoln Westmoreland apartment complex on 8th Street Northwest. It reads Heritage at Shaw Station, now leasing luxury apartment homes. The banner is new. 
The apartments have only been on the market for a couple of months. But the building, a four-story brown brick garden-style apartment block, is not. Lincoln Westmoreland is, or was, a building that was subsidized through what we call a project-based Section 8 program. And it was a public-private partnership to provide subsidized housing to low-income individuals. That's Rebecca Lindhurst, a housing attorney at Bread for the City, a nonprofit serving the city's low-income community. What she means when she says public-private partnership is that Lincoln Westmoreland was owned by a private company, Mid-City Financial Corporation. But the development was part of the Section 8 program. Low-income residents paid 30% of their pay to rent, and the federal government covered the rest. But now that's changed. The Lincoln Westmoreland landlords recently opted out of the Section 8 program. Now, new tenants who don't have a Section 8 housing voucher have to make a minimum of $49,500 in order to rent a one-bedroom apartment. To better understand this, a history lesson is in order. The opting out of HUD project-based financing happened with a great deal of frequency, I think, in the mid-2000s. That's Misty Thomas, a lawyer with the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. When the market was booming, people saw the prospect for turning their private rental building into a bigger investment than the value of the stability of that HUD-subsidized money and the assured rent that comes in. But then the bottom fell out of the housing market in 2008. Suddenly, taking a chance in the market didn't seem like such a great idea. Landlords whose buildings were part of the HUD program stuck with it. It was a safe bet. Now, in 2013, the housing market seems like it's rebounding. Property owners like Mid-City Financial Corporation are ready to take a risk by putting their units on the open market. One of the people most concerned about the changes coming to Shaw and the former Lincoln Westmoreland Apartments is Nadia Johnson. She's president of the Complex's Tenants Association and has lived there with her mother since 2001. I look around and I see that this is becoming an extension of Georgetown. It's for the rich and upper middle class, and the lower class to working middle class are being phased out, period. Johnson and her fellow tenants still call their apartment complex Lincoln Westmoreland. The changes that have come with a new name, like brand new hardwood floors, stainless steel appliances, and granite countertops don't impact them. Their apartments weren't the ones renovated. And that's causing some hard feelings, explains Kimberly Butts, who has lived in the complex her whole life. I feel like we can have, you know, the same exact amenities as the other apartments, you know, the new luxury apartments do. But that's not the case. One of the tenants who moved in and live above me, they said, oh, we thought all the apartments looked like that. I'm like, no, your apartment looks like that because the person above me moved out and they renovated your apartment. Everybody else in this building's apartments look like crap because it's, it's the same stuff we had since they put this up. And we want what you guys have. But it's more than just wanting the same amenities as the tenants who are paying market rent. The Lincoln Westmoreland residents who have been there for years worry that the changes are a harbinger of a complete demographic shift, one in which they are priced out of the city entirely. Resident Lakeisha Harden. I'm, I'm just scared of them trying to push us out where we've been for such a long time. In a statement to Metro Connection, Mid-City Financial Corporation said it planned to keep Heritage at Shaw Station affordable. Though the company declined to speak more specifically about changes it's making to the apartments and the impacts on current residents. At first, you might say, who cares? The Section 8 housing subsidy is becoming a movable voucher that residents can take anywhere. The current tenants can stay in their homes if they want, and the development gets a sprucing up. So what's the big issue? But Misty Thomas says the changes at Lincoln Westmoreland actually represent a much bigger set of challenges. Problem is, 
that that is a loss of what we call hard stock affordable housing units. And the reason we here at the legal clinic think there's still a really strong value to having hard stock affordable housing rather than just vouchers everywhere is these footprints in communities. Housing advocates say many of the changes coming to Shaw can't be stopped. But they argue that redevelopment can be done in a way that maintains the essential character of a neighborhood and values those residents who help build the community. That might mean fewer dog parks and beer gardens and more of a priority placed on housing that working people can actually afford. I'm Lauren Ober. Are you a current or former resident of Shaw? If so, what do you make of the changes that have come to the neighborhood over the past decade? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. So clearly, when it comes to Shaw, things may come and things may go. But the place we'll visit next is pretty darn near timeless. It's a barbershop just south of Florida Avenue on 7th Street Northwest. It's called Greg's Barbershop. But as owner Frank Love explains, Greg, the man whose name is on the sign, well, he's not here anymore. No, I never met him. He, he was deceased before I came here. Mm-hmm. He's the original owner. We just kept the name, yeah, yeah. Frank Love moved here from South Carolina in the early 1960s and steadily built up his clientele at the shop. Emily Berman introduces us to Love and the rest of the gang behind and in the chairs of a century-old business. Greg's Barbershop is narrow with six mint green barber chairs going from the front door to the back wall. And the man behind chair number one is 24-year-old Ty Love, Frank Love's grandson. I guess football where I'm working out, so I had to try something else. In the chair is a regular, Isaac O'Neill. This is like a family environment in here. I've been to a couple other barbershops in the area, and it's just like a business, and then they want you in, they want you out, they just want your money. But here... No, no, we're very reasonable. We have some come from Houston. They say a regular haircut, $30. I mean, just a haircut. Gennaro Allard used to work at a competing barbershop down the street, But that building has been replaced with brand new condos. So he's been here at Greg's for six years, charging until recently just 12 bucks a haircut. In July, they bumped it up to 14. Uh, We're still cheaper than everybody. It's what retirees and students can afford, and it still manages to pay the rent. Plus, Allard points out, no matter how tough the economy gets, this barbershop has managed to stay in demand. I don't care how bad you you, you, you get a haircut, you get groomed. I don't know how they find the money. I'm just glad they do. (laughs) Allard brought some of his customers with him from down the street, and Ty is still building up his clientele. But the boss of the shop, Frank Love, has been seeing some of his customers longer than both of those two have been alive. How long have I been coming here, Frank? Oh, man. 40 years? Good 40. Yeah, good 40. Same barber for 40 years. From his seat in Love's Barber Chair, customer Ron Dixon has been looking out those front windows onto a neighborhood that's changed tremendously over the years. What was across the street? Brown's Corner and may I get my old gabardine pants? Dunbar Market. Yeah, the Dunbar Market, the uh, pawn shop. All this is over there where CVS is now across the street. All of this was on that side and that was all destroyed during the riots. This used to be his neighborhood barbershop, but Dixon moved away in the late 70s when drugs began to take hold of the area. I guess maybe it was just a little too depressing, so I had to go somewhere else. 
but that doesn't stop me from coming back. And people don't go through life with, but with so many true friends. And I, can, I do consider this old man standing behind me a, a friend for years. With that, Dixon extends his arm up, pointing to the mirrored wall behind him. It's lined with obituaries and photos of past customers. One way or the other, it was, you know, connected to the shop, you know, some kind of way, yeah. yeah we've been to a lot of funerals over the years, Frank. Yeah, sure have, yeah. When you look up on the wall and see how many people that have passed, some of them, some of them acquaintances, some of them just people that I know by coming to the barber shop. When you have a true friend, you try to hang in there and stick by him. So he doesn't give me any any reduction in price. I'm still I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> Frank loves smiles and takes a brush to Dixon's shoulders, dusting off the hair shavings. Then in walks the next customer. Avert Shannon, a tall retiree who spent his career working at Shaw's Wonder Bread factory. He's been coming to get haircuts here for more than 50 years. So he cut mine, and he cut my son's, and cut my grandson. Shannon says he's seen the neighborhood change quite a bit, but is happy to report that Greg's has stayed pretty much the same, 100 years and counting. I'm Emily Berman. To see photographs of Greg's Barbershop, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, and Tara Boyle, along with reporters Lauren Ober and Hans Anderson. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website, too, by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our free podcast there or find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll present a show we're calling House and Home. We'll look at D.C.'s ongoing struggle with homelessness and we'll visit an old cabin in the woods to hear why local hikers want to bring it back to life. Plus, they say there's no place like home. Well, we'll meet some men who now call home a prison in suburban Maryland. And the day's going to come where things aren't going to, you're going to be out and things aren't going to go your way and you're going to have a choice to make. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.